You're listening to the Trust Issues Podcast. I'm David Puner, a senior editorial manager at CyberArk, the global leader in identity security. The COVID-19 pandemic accelerated transformation across global healthcare systems one silver lining for an industry that's expected to feel its impact for years. This widespread digitization is reshaping every aspect of care to improve outcomes for patients. Those patients, you, me, everyone. But as healthcare becomes increasingly data-driven, our personal health information seems to become less and less, well, personal. From a simple mail-in cheek swab to trace family history, to a fingerprint scan to match hospital patients with their EHR records, have we become too flip about giving our digital DNA away? When we share our health-related data, we trust the recipient will use it for good, to make healthcare more accessible for us as individuals, and to drive medical advancements that will result in longer, healthier lives for all. And for organizations receiving that data, How they handle the great responsibility of trust could well be the difference in the long run between thriving, surviving, or do not resuscitate. In short, trust is a pillar of modern healthcare. Without it, progress isn't possible. On today's episode of Trust Issues, I talk with Mike Towers, who's the Chief Digital Trust Officer with Takeda Pharmaceuticals. It's a relatively new role there, and he had a lot of input into the role's creation and its multi-tiered focus, and it's really interesting to hear him talk about it and break it down. If you like hearing about innovation and about the importance of data, I think you're really going to like this episode. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Mike Towers. You recently took on a newly expanded role at uh, Takeda Pharmaceuticals as their first ever chief digital trust officer. What does that mean? And and how's the role different from your previous CISO role? Basically, the digital trust officer role is a representation of a significant shift that we're taking in the company to have much more of our business all parts of our business, the entire value chain, uh, deeply dependent and rewired around data, digital and technology. So it's a signal of that transition. It does take on a traditional, I would say, CISO's responsibilities, which I previously had, areas like security operations, identity and access management, governance, risk and compliance, et cetera. And builds upon that foundation. And at least in our instantiation, we're going to focus on three areas of growth, if you will, that we think this digital trust responsibility extends our reach and extends our needed focus. Number one is in the data space. We're gathering much more data. We are making the business and enabling the business to be much more data-driven in their decision-making and in their operations and how we capture, how we share it, how we extract it, how we move it, uh, how we protect it, how we govern it uh, from a data perspective is is part one at significantly higher volumes than we used to be. Second part is digital engagement. 
which is we are completely and totally widening and broadening the digital reach of our company from an ecosystem perspective to include patients, physicians, payers, government entities, uh, in our business, donors. We have a plasma business that there are donors involved. And all of those entities are becoming much more directly engaged digitally. And how they're connected and how they're engaged is the second part. And then the third part is what I broadly call ethical analytics. So when you gather all this data and you want to apply algorithms, you want to apply analytics to that data, how you do so is becoming more and more important when you start thinking about, for example, expectations or at least concerns of over-surveillance or whether or not there's uh, unintended bias in your analytics or whether or not the analytics that you're applying fit with the original intent and purpose with which the data was captured. So that's part of it as well. So basically, in summary, it's the existing or my previous use of responsibilities, plus those three new practice areas, uh, uh, trusted data, digital engagement, and ethical analytics. We have an affinity for the word trust and uh, definitely feel a kinship with you having that in your in your title. Wondering about the importance of trust as it relates to your industry. The healthcare industry overall has not been the most reputable when it comes with things like leveraging data and digital and being more efficient. The biopharmaceutical industry specifically, which is a subset of healthcare, has struggled with reputational issues about you know, perceived or in some respects, frankly, real commitment over of revenue over treatment and some of the other inappropriate sales practices that have happened with the industry in the past. And I think, frankly, the third part is that, you know, we're all patients. So everybody lives and breathes in the healthcare industry. Some, unfortunately, more regularly and deeply than others, but everyone has experience living and breathing in the healthcare industry. So all of those things together increase the level of trust that's needed to effectively deliver treatment and also, frankly, engender enough reputation and trust to be comfortable that the treatment you're getting will be highly efficacious, will be uh, effective, uh, that your data is taken care of the more you're doing it digitally. So uh, the trust, generally speaking, the trust of the industry has historically been based on the efficacy of our products. But moving forward, we see much more of that trust equation being based on these data and digital experiences. So it sounds like your role isn't, it's not about the role first and then the trust and the the transparency will flow through the organization. It sounds like your role is kind of a manifestation of what's been going on within the organization transformation. In some respects, it's reflective of what the industry is going through overall. You know, historically, healthcare has been very, very inefficient. It's very in-person centric. It's very paper-based. We often use the excuses of regulatory to not move very quickly. We're quite slow. And there's not been a lot of disruption comparatively with other industries. And the movement in that space was starting and had some momentum, but the pandemic definitely accelerated it. I mean, the pandemic brought upon society a lot of focus on healthcare um, and a lot of focus on, frankly, being digital because of everybody having to be remote. So it was an interesting conglomeration of those two types of waves. And that, you know, came about in things like telehealth, where you can get care through FaceTime or other uh, video means, or even 
more virtual clinical trials when you're participating in, in clinical studies. So, and frankly, anybody that works or has worked in a technology type of role in healthcare, you know, we've uh, not done a good enough job in this space. We've not disrupted enough. We've not made this more efficient and we need to leverage the springboard and do more. So I think one of the things that we should probably do now is take a step back from all this for a moment and take a look at how you got into this role, what your career path has looked like. If somebody's out there wanting to, aspiring to be a, a chief trust officer, how could somebody else learn how to, how to get into your seat from there? A lot of us who want to be leaders have to ask ourselves and take the right path accordingly. If you're going to be a deeply, deeply technical security person, you're probably not going to advance from a leadership perspective because so much of security leadership is about risk and less around security technology. I think the transition or at least the elevation to a trust perspective, taking on, I'll say, the next level of this question is, I would say, broadly speaking, there's two areas that uh, path and journey is to focus on to get, I would say, from security to trust. Number one is understanding that the world is much bigger than your company. So thinking more at the ecosystem scale, you know, thinking more than just your employees or just your uh, contracted consultants, you know, understanding who deals with you in the broad ecosystem, whether it's third parties or in our instance, it would be patients, physicians, et cetera. So understand that wider ecosystem is point one. Point two is understanding your business value chain. So why do you exist as a company? What is the business value chain? Understanding, again, in our industry, what does it mean to get from early stage drug research into, into drug development and then getting that into a manufacturing type of approach and supply chain and then getting in that into a negotiations about how various insurance companies or governments are going to pay for it. And then understanding the challenges of getting the treatment to patients and post-treatment care responsibilities. Understanding that value chain from a business perspective and, and understanding what it means to keep those value or that value chain uh, from a resiliency perspective is a really, really important piece as well. And I think there are, frankly, I've worked with a lot of folks who aren't ready to make that transition. Again, speaking in my industry's perspective, one of the things that you really have to ask yourself if you're an aspiring security leader, do you want to be the type of security leader that you can be pl plucked out of your role and put into another completely different industry? Or do you want to know your business deeply enough that you're going to be a pharma, in my case, a biopharmaceutical executive first? that happens to know security versus just a pure security executive that really, really deeply knows technology. It's two very, very different right. paths. And it seems like some of the cues that you're taking in this role potentially have come from other interest, industries. Is that is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think, interestingly enough, the one that I would point to the most directly uh, is the tech industry. Because if you look at, frankly, who currently has trust officers or senior trust executives, the vast majority of them are tech companies. Salesforce, Uber, Workday are, are some examples. HP, Cisco are two more, SAP. Um, and even though they do different things, they are very, very heavily tech-driven companies. And the reason why trust officers are important to those companies is that in many respects, the lifeblood of the success of that company is based on how well it does data, digital, and technology, period. So there are other industries like oil and gas, like utilities, 
where maybe how you do data digital and tech isn't that critical and may not impact your business. I, I mean, I personally believe that data digital and tech impacts all businesses, but maybe not to the same level. Um, but if you look at a tech company, data issues, digital issues, security issues, privacy issues, ethical issues, all of those things deeply linked to data, digital, and technology will have direct implications to the reputation and trust level of your company. Uh, and therefore, we're taking a lot of cue from them because in many respects, Takeda is striving to be that for the biopharmaceutical industry. We want to be the tech disruptor for biopharmaceuticals. And if we want to do that, we have to take this uh, this trust role seriously. And therefore, it's part of the reason why we created the role. So tell me if I've got these numbers right. Takeda has 70,000 employees, 20 million patients, 2 million doctors in the network uh, in 100 plus countries. That's uh, roughly correct. I mean, the 70,000 is, I would call them workers. We have about 55,000 employees and 15,000 contractors that aren't officially employees, but they work on our network. But yeah, broadly speaking, it's a workforce of 70,000. And those patient and uh, physician numbers are uh, are important. There's another data point that I think is important as well. Takeda does have a plasma business where mm -hmm. it's a modality where we take plasma from people who donate their blood and we turn that into life-saving medicine. That's another five to eight million or so people that we engage with, frankly, closer to a more consumer approach uh, because of the transaction with them is, is loyalty-based. It's marketing-driven. Uh, making sure that they're comfortable and uh, to be repeat customers, et cetera. So that's another data point as well. So I'm bringing up those large numbers to get to the question about, or a question about, you know, wanting to be the tech, a tech disruptor in such a large ship, as it were, to use the term ship metaphorically. Is that more difficult to be a tech tech disruptor with such a large established company than it is for, I don't think there's probably an apples to apples comparison, but some much smaller company in a, in a different vertical. If you look broadly speaking at some of the tech disruptors in healthcare, if I take healthcare broadly, and I define healthcare the same way, frankly, the country's critical infrastructure defines it. Healthcare, broadly speaking, is for subsectors. It's biopharmaceuticals, it's medical devices, it's insurance slash payment, and it's providers, hospitals, doctors, offices, et cetera. That's broadly speaking, the four parts of healthcare. And the most disruptive companies have been the really, really tiny uh, or the tech companies that are dabbling and in getting into healthcare, mainly because they don't have, I would call it the, the massive momentum of legacy that a lot of the big pharmaceuticals and medical device companies that have built up over the years. You know, we have applications in our plants and in our manufacturing processes that are old enough to vote. They're 18 plus years old. And when you're a disruptor for a small tech company or you have, you know, you take a look at what Apple's done or what Fitbit's done or what Amazon has done with the Halo technology, uh, there's all sorts of disruption that those companies have been able to make because A, they're not saddled with that legacy and B, frankly, they're attacking parts of the sector that aren't as tightly regulated. So uh, they're challenging the system, if you will. Now, I think the reason why Takeda can be a disruptor and where we come in is that there are other parts of healthcare overall that are not addressed by some of those newer tech startups, but we still have a responsibility to do better and do more efficiently. And I also think that if we think about this from a business perspective, 
the biopharmaceutical business model has historically been incentivized by volume of prescription. It has not been incentivized by how health, how much healthier you and I get, or how much health, how much better the disease state gets, or symptoms improve. And one of the things that we're trying really, really hard, and Takeda is leading the way here, is we're trying to transition the industry to be, to be much more outcomes driven. Your disease gets better, your symptoms improve, you become healthier, the incentives go up. That should be the right incentivization. To do that requires a significant amount of data collection, data measurement, patient monitoring, and completely explodes the volume, breadth of data collection and then data processing, which is frankly, again, circles back to one of the big reasons why we want to be more disruptive, because we know that to do this properly, we have to get into that game and we have to get into that business. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why Takeda wants to be a disruptor, because we really, really do want to drive. And we are, it's, it's public knowledge. We are one of the leading voices in our sector to become more outcomes based. So you mentioned risk earlier. And within what you were just talking about, it sounds like there is a lot of margin for risk, potentially. Is that correct? And if so, how do you mitigate that risk? I look at it in many respects around four what I call four competing tension levers that all contribute to our ability to do this effectively and at scale. Number one is there's all this new stuff that we're talking about, this new innovation, these new opportunities, whether it's new companion devices uh, that run on a mobile phone or new medical devices or some of these clever and really, really innovative new capabilities. That's brand new stuff that requires a different level of security than say the old stuff that you have. I mentioned before the manufacturing plants, your big ERP systems, your R and D systems that are older. So there's a natural tension point between securing the new and protecting the old. So that's two of the four tension points. The other tension point, which any security or trust leader is going to deal with is that the quote unquote bad guys, the threat actors, they're not sitting on their hands and letting you take a breath because you're trying to do this. They're constantly changing and getting better. They're getting more sophisticated. So you have to keep up with the pace of how they're evolving and how they're changing. And the fourth lever intention point is we're constantly expanding our business. As you mentioned before, some of the volumes that you mentioned, we're constantly expanding our business to a much broader level of connection. So as the threat landscape is getting more complex and more, you know, you call it dangerous, at the same time, we're increasing our risk levels because we're widening the reach of our digital and data uh, connections. So all of those push and pull in different directions and prioritization and focus is very, very critical. So a lot of it does boil down to what risks are we willing to accept. I'll give you a couple of real world examples to Kate is dealing with. One of the biggest disease areas that we have a lot of patients suffering from conditions that we have really, really good medicines in is uh, GI, gastrointestinal conditions, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, for example. So, you know, we, we can talk about the real, real advanced science of our biologic medicines that get injected into people and to help them, but there's day-to-day -day challenges that a patient with GI and a, and a patient with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis deals with, things like finding a bathroom quickly. It may sound low tech, but it's something that they need. So we have digital apps that will help them find the nearest toilet, wherever they are in the world. Um, that's an area that, frankly, you can probably take a little bit more risk in doing that than, say, helping somebody with uh, multiple myeloma or leukemia, which is a whole different level of risk when you're dealing about potential digital capabilities and digital opportunities for there. So we can take different risks 
across the various parts of our health spectrum and establishing where we can make the most impact. So what you're talking about there, to a certain degree, would be patient engagement as well. Correct. And so when it comes to patient engagement, how does that fit into your your bigger purview? Yeah, so interesting pivot point here. The biopharmaceutical part of our industry has historically been quite abstracted from patients. So we rely on third-party clinical trials companies to do the clinical testing or, or research hospitals will do clinical testing. Uh, generally speaking, the value chain, I, I mentioned before how important value chain is. Generally speaking, the value chain of biopharmaceuticals stopped as soon as the prescription was written. Once the prescription was written, our exposure and our engagement and connection with those patients was really not a business priority because the models didn't allow it to occur. All of that is changing and farm and and it's there's a couple of reasons why it's changing. Number one is that we in the biopharmaceutical industry realize that we need to get better engagement with patients to better understand their conditions and to improve their health. But patients themselves are becoming much more empowered and they want to drive their own care. They want to make they want to be more involved in the decision making process. And in order to do that, you have to learn more. So patient engagement fits in in a number of different areas. It starts again, if you walk through the biopharmaceutical value chain, it starts with clinical trials. So if we're going to do testing on clinical trials for certain conditions, how do we find the right patients? How do we recruit them? How do we give them the right level of trust and expectations management so that when they're participating in these trials that they they, they do so willingly and they do so um, you know well and they're, they're compliant with what we're asking them to do, et cetera. So there's the clinical trials piece, which again, historically has been very, very physically facility dependent, in-person dependent. We want to make that more flexible. The second piece is delivery companions. So if we're delivering a drug, that there can be tech companions to enable that delivery to be better. So maybe it's an app that kind of like monitors your Fitbit for your blood pressure or whatever, or so companion care type of things, or even that find the toilet I mentioned before. That's a companion care type of, uh, of, of element. Third area where patient engagement is really important, and this is a really, really challenging area, especially in one of our therapeutic focus areas, which is rare diseases, is trying to come up with a way to do earlier diagnosis. When you suffer from a rare disease, one of the biggest challenges is that you may have been dealing with conditions where one out of every 10 doctors has actually ever seen it and had experience treating it. And the average time it takes to diagnose patients with some of these rare diseases can be as much as 10 years. So the earlier you can diagnose these conditions, the better you're going to be able to, to treat them. So leveraging uh, all sorts of biomarkers, indicators to allow us to do more uh, and better earlier diagnosis is really important from a patient engagement perspective. I mentioned before health ongoing health management. You know, we've all probably dabbled with with the the iWatch experience or the Fitbit experience or the uh, Amazon Halo experience when we have things monitoring our vitals or whatever. How can we leverage that data? So that's that's another patient engagement piece. And last but certainly not least is circling all of that data back into the requirements gathering process for where we invest energy for new treatment and new care opportunities. So having that all of that circle back into the beginning of the funnel, if you will. So it's monitoring, it's outcomes, et cetera, so that we are armed with the best data to pivot potentially where we want to focus for uh, for new opportunities. So you've got a pretty full plate, it seems. Um, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so of, of everything that's on your plate, 
what's the biggest challenge you face in your role as it pertains to trust? I think the biggest challenge from a trust perspective is everything that we've talked about. And I want to make sure our listeners don't view this as trying to say whose industry is more important than others or I have a lot of respect for anybody who does the security leadership regardless of the industry. But there are certain social responsibility elements of certain industries that are different than others. So getting and rewiring a company from a healthcare perspective and a pharmaceutical perspective is a very, very different responsibility than, say, enabling you to be able to book your flights in your hotels digitally. It's a very, very different responsibility area. So I think what the biggest challenge is and what keeps me up at night is that all of these digital enhancements and data opportunities are really, really uh, impactful, but they carry with them a significant social responsibility element to make sure that the people that can benefit from them the most are comfortable going along with the journey. And we're carrying a much level, a much higher level of responsibility in doing that. Some of the biggest obstacles of doing this at scale is because people just don't trust giving their data up to be useful in this regard. Whether it is they think that it's going to end up, you know, fig, uh, uh, some way to sell them more product, or they're worried about their data being breached. You know, there's a lot of historical mistrust in sharing enough data for us to do this properly. So that's something that we have to figure out a way. And it's not just a Takeda problem. This is an industry-wide problem, which is where I think industry collaboration is so important, is to make sure that we do this um, with the right level of social responsibility. So you did mention the other industries just now. What other industries are there that you can take cues from when it comes to both your role and as an inspiration for pushing uh, digital transformation further? Well, I mentioned tech. Another industry that I would say it may sound like a weird one to, to take cues from, but I think it's important, is you take something like oil and gas or utilities. where um, And the reason why some of these other industries that historically some people may view as, um, as conservative but one of the biggest shifts that's happened in security leadership overall is many, many security leaders have been spending years focusing on the C of the CIA triad. Broadly speaking, people define information security and cybersecurity as protecting three things, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Most security leaders and most security departments have historically prioritized heavily on the C of the CIA, making sure your data is not breached, making sure your data is not exposed, making sure your data is not stolen making sure competitors don't put their hands on it. But more and more, you start to realize, and again, the more you are data and digitally driven as a company, the more important this is. The A is critically important. So making sure that your systems are up and running is oftentimes as important, if not more so, than whether or not your data is exposed. So when you look at an industry like oil and gas or utilities, resiliency and availability is a number one fundamental top priority. So uh, there's a lot we can learn from industries like that where maybe the consistent, trusted, and resilient uptime of their systems is more important, frankly, than whether or not their data gets breached. Interesting. Really interesting. I feel like we've touched upon a lot here, and we could dig into any one of them for probably another many hours. But what I want to ask you is, how do you prepare for the unknown? It sounds like there is an awful lot of unknown and you've got to be confident going in into that. Two-part answer, broadly speaking, and a lot, like a lot of these things, the devil is in the details, but I think it's an interesting thematic question. So number one is, first and foremost, the best way to prepare for the unknown is to expect it. And I think that 
sometimes the security trap we fall into is we try to find and try to figure out what's right and what's expected and then stop the rest. And uh, that's no longer, we can't do that anymore. It's too, it's too difficult to figure that out. So you almost have to expect and assume everything is unknown. Hot buzzword in this area is zero trust, where you assume nothing is trusted and therefore it, it inherently protects you. So I think that's uh, an important uh, discipline here. I think the other element here that I would advise CISOs and aspiring security leaders to think about is let's not be so enamored with the advanced controls that some of are being developed from a technology perspective and focus more on visibility. Because again, everything is so data driven and analysis driven. The more data you have, the more likely uh, you're going to be able to get uh, more, uh, I would say, insights, if you will, and, and better data to analyze to make the right decisions and to drive the right decisions. So to me, it's always visibility that's really, really important as well. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with us. Really, really interesting. You've got a lot on your plate, as I mentioned before, and um, and really interesting to see where, where this all goes. It sounds like it's the beginning of a, of a long, uh, steep trajectory. And it's exciting. So I appreciate the time and I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you about it. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Trust Issues. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, constructive comment, preferably, but, you know, it's up to you. Or an episode suggestion, please drop us an email at trustissues at cyberarc.com. And make sure you're following us wherever you listen to podcasts. 